Welcome to the Australian Book Review podcast. My name's Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. Poetry being an integral part of what ABR does, the magazine has since 2005 offered a poetry prize. In 2011, it was renamed the Peter Porter Poetry Prize to honour the great Australian poet. This year, the prize is worth a total of $10,000. And here we warmly acknowledge the generous support of Morag Fraser, past chair of ABR, and distinguished poet, Andrew Taylor. This year, we received more than 1,300 poems from 34 different countries. The judges on this occasion were Sarah Hollenbat, Jaya Savage, and Anders Villani. In their judges' report, they observed, this year's entries were richly impressive and varied, among which the shortlisted poems impressed with their formal mastery, lyricism, and wit. Broadly, the entries this year tended away from the briefer lyric and elegiac modes in favour of expansive poems with a more immediate political and social justice focus. The judge's full report is available on our website. The shortlisted poems are Sixes and Sparrows by Chris Arnold, Gipps Landing, Triptych by Dan Disney, Australian-esque by Michael Farrell, In the Shadows of Our Heads by Anthony Lawrence, and Hummingbird Country by Debbie Lim. The poems appear in our January-February issue, which is now on sale or available via subscription. Do join us on January the 19th for the online Porter Prize ceremony, which starts at 6pm. The shortlisted poets will introduce and read their poems, and then the overall winner will be named. Meanwhile, this week's ABR podcast features readings of these fine shortlisted poems by the poets themselves. Chris Arnold, our first reader, is a poet and software engineer from Perth. Chris is currently completing a PhD in creative writing at the University of Western Australia. He specialises in electronic literature and information security. His work has appeared in Westerly, Cordite and ABR's States of Poetry. Hi, my name's Chris Arnold. Uh, I'm from Perth on Wadjuk country. Uh, I worked for a lot of years as a software engineer. I'm working at the moment in electronic literature, which I hope explains the unusual epigraph that was the main prompt for my poem, Sixes and Sparrows. Uh, the epigraph comes from a cryptographer and security writer, Bruce Schneier, and it goes, mathematics is perfect. Reality is subjective. Mathematics is defined. Computers are ornery. Mathematics is logical. People are erratic, capricious, and barely comprehensible. So I see the epigraph working in a couple of different ways in the poem. Firstly, it speaks to some feelings of confusion and betrayal that I was trying to express following some events that uh, liberated me from whatever mental health I might have had in the middle of 2021. And I also think that the epigraph speaks to how the poem's put together. 
uh, lately I've been trying to map my thinking into poetry and my thinking at the best of times is ruminative and uh, weirdly associative. So I think I can probably safely be called erratic, capricious and barely comprehensible. And I'll admit to having a lot of anxiety that this attempt to map my thinking is uh, about an as esoteric a poetic project as you can get. So I really can't express just how validating this shortlisting has been for me. I would like to thank ABR and the judges and most of all to Urata Sasnitis for insisting that the poem was worth sending into the Peter Porter Prize. Um, I brought snippets of lots of other little text into the poem. There's song titles and quotes. The print version has all of them clearly indicated, but I'll just list the sources here. There's uh, Catullus, Wallace Stevens, Jory Graham, Angela Carter, Johan Johansson, William Bazinski, A Wing Victory for the Sullen, The Twilight Sad, uh, RSC2821, which is a spec for an email protocol, and the JPEG file interchange format spec. Uh, hope you like the poem. Sixes and Sparrows. It begins with three libraries, three swamps, one that cut bright segments from the air, with backs to black powder coat, a shiver of hand, turtleneck, with hand in hand under the osprey nest, a guide through dark. Stop and watch the time, this will repeat, a black cat on the M. And head up, dear, you're shallow and blind. It begins with mathematics, questions of whether white is one or zero, crow equals zero, too easy, make an adder from nand gates, broken alternator belts, sparrow's feet, all sums go to zero, distance between black cat and reasons to wake. Awake, the hours ductile, made of unquiet desolation, Wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It begins with advice, violence. It begins with a radius, pain, six weeks with a cast left arm. In the aftermath, hagiography, chorus of meanings, layers of black, a history of threat, face framed in crow. At another, no saint, case made from metal, for earthing, for capacity to withstand, thin bleed of warmth, eddy currents under insulation. Always a magic word. Hello for email. JFIF for picture. Stalker for impact. Bits missing in truth tables. Braided paper carries weight. Force and point for passing skull. It all boils down to threat. Black cat on the keyboard. Glass shards. Actor network theory. Inside a skull's osmotic action. Always revenant. A shade in the substrate. And, of course, the software says black isn't black, only zero traced in the shadow, an indecipherable cause. Relax, relax. A six-day panic attack gets you plenty of work. That and eye-burning. Light the way to fresh-washed skin, cotton, a black cat on the femurs. Is sleep a black cat on consciousness? How much of that happened? Where's the evidence? Is this enough? Again, it begins with email, always does. Hello, how do you cope? It begins with admission, negative zero. A hand at the back of the neck is either quiet or threat, one or zero, and hand on the wrist, an empty mantissa. It begins with a library, third swamp, adios Florida. 
It begins in a hall, old library dusted. You could hang a blue whale in there, someone has. How much steel suspends a jawbone? Who braids metal cable, and could they braid baleen? It's a black leather jacket and the smell you'd know anywhere. The one that creeps out, spreads everywhere. It begins with accusation, magenta sensations spread through the flesh, birds of paradise, bison, what kind of life in a glass case? Is there reddening back to accusation or a blanche, bison, birds, taxidermy, the black iron branch, passer, delicii, passer, evacuee. It begins with flight from the city, set aside the sparrow at six. All the stories say never look back, the gods get salty, spend time in a skinner box, never get sick of beginnings, go back for the kick. Whether the birds are black or white, this one flies from sight. No. Start again. It begins with Ativan for dinner, with sleep disruption, the kicking all it knows for affection. Is the black dog a black cat in disguise? Pajamas, what colours its moustache? It begins with Friday this time, with the thickest coffee you can make, black cat's breakfast, and head up, dear, the rabbit may die. It begins with sorry fourfold, third swamps, banks, difficult pills, JFIF, dusty pink, black feathers in her hair. His empty pockets, face drained away. He's in some hell or another on no ladder. Empty pockets. The thing about time is it's engineering. No space for suicide plans in the jawbone of panic. Good show. Who braids the cable? What load can it carry? It begins with conversation, with revision, with critique. A threading. Operations can be parallelized without common critical sections, with panic and memory function, the high wine of platters spun to 7200, oxide dropped off, as if DLP-6 roped off questions of pad, sparrow, Chrysler Spire, night skyline. It begins closer to home, one or zero footprints on country, black cat dodges the jitty-jitty. It begins where it always has, splined under rail tracks, old dog and what he wouldn't give for a kick, a black cat marked the edge of one of many circles. It begins with fascination, that which can't be clawed back. Someone's been hunting, low to the ground, toes angled for purchase. Hello, how do you do time? It's ends. And in between, it begins with spilt red wine, magenta sensation in his face, shame. It begins with secrets, Jarrah wood smoke, something unsaid, low walls. It begins with black cats, never the wine, quarian moon. It begins with sunlight and irises, white pullover, thrown rhizomes. It begins with Orfei. The slow descent has begun. Adios, yes. Dan Disney's most recent books are Accelerations and Inertias, Vagabond Press, 2021, and the anthology New Directions in Contemporary Australian Poetry, co-edited with Matthew Hall, Palgrave, 2021. Dan was shortlisted for the 2016 Porter Prize. He teaches with the English Literature Program at Sogang University in Seoul, South Korea. I wrote these poems in an afternoon, which of course is a total lie, inasmuch as no poem emerges from a vacuum. And these are memories that have been looking for an apposite language for the last three or more decades. I was raised in East Gippsland and, as he'd done with his father, 
spent most weekends following my dad into endless rounds of violence against local fauna and other introduced species. I hated the on way of hunting, punctuated as it was by moments of casual brutality, as if everything in those mountains was simply a patterned surface, a passing moment's death for the sake of entertainment, an event to which we felt somehow entitled. These were not the domains of a permanently upright city where speech is nature and plants conceive in pots, to quote Peter Porter, but instead were places where I personally enacted cruelty. Authoring, as Lionel Fogarty elsewhere asserts, a disease of stupidity in a colonizer's language. As a kid wandering the mountains of East Gippsland with a loaded gun and muted moral conscience, even then I intuited that this particular middle of nowhere had not long ago been, importantly, someone else's somewhere. And so, issuing forth from my memories of roving unchecked over unceded and genocidally overwritten lands, decades later these poems look on while some adult family members continue their own complicities, rope-repeating instrumentalist narratives of land, capital, nation. At heart, I hope these texts add to the work of dissenting against a colonial episteme, which reflexively, and of course syntactically, stupefies. In finding a way to Englishize dissent, the fight that Gippslanding seeks to pick is largely linguistic. Gippslanding, triptych. Lumpen prowling an outer suburb gunshop's counter is off. Dakota mate any chance we get. Drags carter of city shooters each Easter to mountains of Mitagundi. This dozy, dozer, cousin hoo-haring the moo of his bull. In highest legal calibre. The dog teams back in our savage at four-wheel drive thighs of the hero parodies waddling back channels. Swamped. Camo gear over strained paddocks into nightfall. Fitzgerald's hut hypertensively exploding spotlight, whitely into flumed valley enfoldments, as if seeking a mounded crevice to slide into or hole in which to set the key of self, unlocking unreal plenitudes of being. But no, this bullet-spurting panic of flankers whoops in thou shalts across cornerless, flat-whirled terrains of mind, warbling empty as prey birds circling animalities, their own, berserk, unlost, unmad. Spring nights, our land cruiser crawling Hinamunji hills, our spotlights scanning the fence lines, like a bad god's crazed intention unblinking. Our rifles nursed out windows, murmuring in dogged half-talk oi, rue, and the scrub-crossing beams hell bright, nuzzling the blast. We are stabbing holes terminally into marsupial lives, 
our violence of bland high country brotherhood's recreation. And our term for the joeys in pouches is dispatch, as if horror will always find euphemism in the peripheral leaden folds of a ready-made scene. Our brutality's structural. Aquidity snarled in mutters of who the fuck was to know. Those nights depthless with stars shuddering the aeons and our disavowals in blunt grammar keeping each soulless, static in a surface tension of inherited wrongs repeating freely and by rote. In thick slabs, autumn moonlight ghosts bogon, the night impounding the mitter in our tinny bobs the dartmouth dam, stars on black waters as if shoal eyes deeply whirling, adrift, stricken by the monochrome formidable depths we barely intuit. How do you say, whereof we cannot speak, thereof, etc., in... or... Night has been asking, and what are we taught to think of beauty without content all night? Quarter lit and casting the ether for Macquarie perch, native, endangered, and rainbow trout, introduced, staying mute, steadfastly silent, struck dumb as inheritance. Michael Farrell's books include Family Trees and I Love Poetry both published by Giramondo. The scholarly writing Australian unsettlement modes of poetic invention, 1796 to 1945, Pelgrave Macmillan, and as editor, Ashbury Mode, Tinfish, an Australian tribute to John Ashbury. Michael, who lives in Melbourne, won the 2012 Peter Porter Poetry Prize. Hi, ABR audience. Uh, this is Michael Farrell. I've been asked to say a few words about my poem before I read it. The poem is called Australian-esque. It's in quote marks because the poem is, to some extent, about another fictional poem called Australian-esque um, that the narrator proposes was written by uh, Peter Porter and that the narrator has seen, and the poem is apparently, or purportedly, about Christopher Brennan. The poem, although it's kind of a complicated story, came to me quite quickly, and I wrote it quite quickly. It was triggered, I would say, by a phrase in line three, where I referred to my time as Brian Castro. I had recently been reading Castro's book on Brennan called Street to Street. So that went in there. And um, I guess other other things that I've read recently about fictional representations of Australian literature, like John Scott's recent book, I think. Yeah, so that kind of just kind of snowballed, I suppose. and took me through three sonnet-length stanzas. And it is kind of like an Australian 
literary studies poem um, in that it brings out um, just little elements of the research I've done um, while writing about Australian poetry and, yeah, just other bits of other things that I was able to bring in and the fact that I did meet Peter Porter a couple of times, two or three times, and I suppose it's just another attempt in a poem as opposed to an essay to try and, like, make sense of relations between different aspects of Australian poetry and history to a little extent. Australian-esque. Peter Porter wrote a sonnet sequence about Christopher Brennan, which has never been published. Peter showed me the poem in a notebook during my brief time as Brian Castro. I didn't feel comfortable being Castro long, although Brian himself was fine with it, particularly given my work with Melbourne's Hong Kong community, giving advice on being gay or queer in Australia, offering practice dating sessions, etc. The poem had the title Australian-esque, which Peter verbally qualified as a working one. He was venturing his verb on the acrostic form, not a la Gwen Harwood with any mischievous intent, yet partly in mild homage to her famous stunt. Rather than use, as would be conventional, he felt, he said, too conventional, Brennan's or Harwood's names, he used the 14 letters of the coinage Australian-esque to start each line. Hence his reservation regarding the title, which would give it away. The poem and the notebook itself seemed to have disappeared. I went through Porter's archive and talked to his lovely daughter when I was Helen Garner and had an idea about writing a book about death as emotional blackmail, tentatively titled The Ultimate, that would bring Ted Hughes, Brennan and other male writers together. My, i.e. Helen's publisher, was sceptical and the project died a natural death. By then, I was myself again. It's a funny position to be in, when my own interests overlap with those of the identities, I assume. I write poems about the quarrels I have with myself, usually to do with approach and emphasis, like a proper Yeatsian, and wish I could talk to, or as, Judith Wright about them. Peter Steele writes about this notion somewhere, but Peter P. never mentioned Yeats to me. He seems livelier than W.B. Perhaps we could compare Yeatsians with Steinian poets along the lines of a quarrel with nouns. But not here. I remember the poem itself better than others that I've been shown by my illustrious antecedents because of the form. E.g. N. for Ned Kelly. In the poem, Kelly appears as Brennan's spiritual ancestor, or perhaps rhetorical ancestor is more accurate. Compare Ned's Drilledry letter to Brennan's Musica Poematographoscope, and I think you will see what I mean. It's the productive convergence of the desperation to be heard, coupled with an enraged desire to damn their respective audiences. It's tempting to wonder what Porter's brilliant mind might do with I for Indigenous and Q for Queer, but 
That is to wonder like a person of 2021 or 22. And you can spell Australian-esque without other key initials. M for migrant, C for convict, or G for gold, e.g. Porter was, I think, more interested in the vague philosophical slipperiness of the suffix-esque, using both Dante-esque and Carnival-esque in his poem. It's short for an excess. Anthony Lawrence has published 16 books of poems, the most recent being Ken, Life Before Man 2021. His books and individual poems have won a number of awards, including the 2010 Porter Prize. He teaches creative writing at Griffith University, Queensland, and lives on Moreton Bay. The great Australian painter Fred Williams once said that looking out a kitchen window in Box Hill or through the windscreen of a car driving through the Mallee was great preparation for painting. I'm sure that Williams and many other abstract expressionists uh, really allowed process itself to get them there rather than have a, a fully formed vision of how the work would look on the canvas. I love William's um, large format paintings, his exploration of the colour field and the intuition that went into transforming the Australian landscape. I tend to work on each poem in a way that is deeply surprising line by line. I never know uh, where I'm going, apart from perhaps small glimpses of a larger picture. But in the end, really, uh, I can be three quarters the way into a poem and still have little idea of where I'm going, but, uh, but often a, a deep-seated, um, subliminal knowledge uh, of what I'm doing. And that certainly applies, that, that running on instinct, that lighting the fuse that leads to the finished poem is certainly the case with my poem In the Shadows of Our Heads. I do recall that the day before I began the poem, I was running around with my dogs on the lower oval um, of a fairly large sequence of, of fields and ovals in Wynnum on Moreton Bay. And the house in the corner um, of the first field uh, sadly has a beautiful Kelpie blue heel across dog that is rarely, if ever, let out of the yard. And so I think I had that in my mind when I began this poem. Apart from that, I had no idea where I was going and the poem, um, as 99% of my poems do, wrote itself. In the shadows of our heads... I called the Humane Society to report the neglect of a neighbour's dogs. A woman assured me there would be an investigation, took my details, then asked if I needed more assistance. I mentioned the flightless swans of Malta, and she said, imagine, 10,000 years, then added, they were the size of the pygmy elephants that also roamed the island. To test her liability to respond in a capering manner, I described the pattern of my sleep and how, after drinking aquavit, 
my cells become part of the dust of the Horsehead Nebula. Your astral projection is world-class, she said. I could see a swivel chair, the noise-cancelling headset, a light blue blouse embroidered with a hook or claw symbol, the windows of light on her shoes. Are your projections always so peregrinatory? I'm curious, as I sense I'm far too fond of the regional. Satisfied, I felt compelled to ask if spring in the mountains had ever crossed her radar as a good season and reason for marriage, but chose instead to invite her for a drink. I don't date, but we could drive. As long as you're partial to Elgar's Nimrod, anything by Wagner, and my minder, Karl, who, depending on his mood, likes to follow at a clip or respectful distance in his beamer. I laughed. All right, she said. His name is Bob. He's either a serial tailgater or he moves like a tortoise in his triumph Mayflower. On Sunday morning, her music darkening the speakers, we passed the wreckage of housing estates, then onto a road lined with trees that cast flickering lines of light and shade like a view through the arrow slit of a zoetrope. We opened the past and found things worth sharing. As a child, she'd been orphaned when, escaping a forest fire, the family car had come adrift in smoke and driven off a bridge. She had lost an eye and her spine had been broken. The monocular vision and limp had ended her ribbon floor exercise routine. When we met, she had approached like someone leaning into wind. I told her I'd stolen meteor samples from an observatory on a school excursion. This had led to frequent stealing. And when I said, kleptomania, I lowered my voice and concluded the confession with the words, illness, serial, and the eight-point turn of psychopharmacological. When we stopped for lunch, I sat across from her by a river whose patchworked surface she described as snakeskins sewn haphazardly together. I saw the glass eye and she said, ocular, three perfect syllables, then they ruined everything with prosthesis. Her hand hovered briefly over mine before moving on. I said nothing, and she took a long time to answer it. We discussed rescue dogs and how certain bats would make good pets if only their bites weren't potentially lethal, causing fever and delirium. At 15, she had run away to live in a trilogy of Mervyn Peak novels. I suggested we return via a pub where the Guinness is collared velvet to music live. As we stood, the pilot light of a kingfisher fluttered on and went out in the shadows of our heads. Debbie Lim's poems have appeared in the Best Australian Poems series and Contemporary Asian Australian Poets, plus other anthologies. Her chapbook, Beastly Eye, was published by Vagabond Press, and she is currently working on a full-length collection. She lives in Sydney. My name is Debbie Lim. 
name is Debbie Lim and I'll be reading my poem Hummingbird Country. Hummingbird Country was written in late 2020 and its starting point was the first line of an arresting poem called Hummingbirds by the American poet Norman Doobie. That line was, they will be without arms like God. And I guess in the way that poetry seems to do so well, that single line riveted me and seemed to suggest an entire world, or at least poem world, that wanted to be written. The world of hummingbird country is quite a dystopian one, but it's also one that, for me, celebrates the power of the small, quiet voice and the transformative possibilities of the overlooked, the unseeming. Part of the challenge of writing it was finding the right form, the right lineation that could embody some quite opposing qualities, for example, the mercurial and the resistant, the airy and oppressive, the fragile and the tenacious. It also took me down the fascinating rabbit hole of reading up about hummingbirds, and I've always loved the serendipitous uh, fact-finding and research that comes with writing some poems. I think there's a wondrously precise yet mythical quality about these tiny, shimmering creatures. And I hope the poem partly captures this too. Hummingbird Country My aunt says, never trust a hummingbird. Never trust a creature which flies backwards with ease whose feet were made useless for walking. My aunt is not a real aunt, but a cat shaped like a woman. She runs her claws across the ceiling and drags my heart from room to room in a grey ribbed mouth. She stalks in gardens, steals all the hummingbird feeders. Later I hear their glass bones jittering apart in the sack when she kisses them with a hammer. My aunt says never trust an animal that is armless like God. In each eye sits a minute camera. She gouges out each flowering bush by the house, installs heavy velvet blackout curtains. Bad days she binds me to the chair. I practice violet, palpitations and miniature thoughts. Teach my fingers to flutter so fast you can't see them. I wear skin brooches, tender blues, green. She hasn't noticed I am mastering the art of iridescence. Evenings I collect slugs and grind them to a paste. Gather lichens, compare the tensile strength of different kinds of spider's silk. In my head, I hone a delegation of moons. My tongue lengthens and grooves. Under darkness, I rehearse the languages they will speak in the new country. Snowcap, emerald, hermit, bee. When she comes in at night to check my breath, I sink deep into torpor.
I am learning to sleep like the dead in a thimble of moss. Each morning on waking, I perform fresh wing beats in bed. Marvel at how small I've become. Tomorrow, break of day, I will be glint of raindrop, genuflection of light, rotation of air. Afterwards, she will lift back the sheet and find nothing but a tiny pair of dropped arms. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ABR podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 per month for digital. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Jack Khalil and Clancy Balin, who edit the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.